0: Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 31 this morning. In chapter 9, Jesus took a little child in his arms and said that those who welcome such little children in his name welcome him. Jesus then warned of the extreme consequences of hell for those who abuse children. Then, after dealing with a question on divorce, Mark picks up the topic of children again when many people started bringing their children to Jesus to bless them. Let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would impact us powerfully with this vital message from your word this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, we find that Jesus' disciples rebuked some parents for bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. The Greek word for rebuke here is an expression of strong disapproval. It may have been kind of like implying, What's the matter with you? Don't you think Jesus has anything better to do than bless your kid? When Jesus saw this in verse 14, he was indignant. In other words, Jesus was upset at his disciples. Our culture envisions a Jesus who was all-tolerant and all-accepting. By contrast, the biblical Jesus sometimes got indignant and even angry at sin. Jesus then told his disciples not to keep the kids away because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In fact, in verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The question is, in what way must we be like little children to enter the kingdom of God? Many sermons I've heard on this verse suggest that we must have childlike faith. But what is childlike faith anyway? After all, you can get kids to believe just about anything. So is Jesus suggesting that to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be gullible? I'm quite sure that's not what he had in mind. On the other hand, it is not gullible to put your trust in someone who is reliable. For example, a little child may trust her dad to protect her because she knows dad is strong and would do anything to keep her from harm. Maybe Jesus is suggesting that like little children, We need to trust Jesus to ultimately bring us safely into his kingdom. But maybe Jesus is referring to the helplessness of little kids. They are dependent on their parents for everything, including food and clothing and shelter. In fact, babies can't even feed themselves or change their own diapers. Children come into this world totally dependent. That's the way we must come to God. We are saved only by his grace not by anything we do or have to offer. If we come to God thinking we are worthy of his blessing or salvation, we will not get it because we are not worthy. There is an old hymn that says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Paul says it better in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So maybe Jesus had in mind a child's total dependence when he said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And actually, those two ideas go together. It is because we are totally dependent on God's grace that we must trust Jesus alone to bring us safely into his kingdom. On the other hand, maybe Jesus was thinking of the unconditional love and devotion little children tend to have toward their parents. Little children will often love their moms even if their moms are mean and abusive. I'm not suggesting God is mean and abusive, of course. My point is that Jesus may be emphasizing the unconditional love and devotion toward the Lord that is part of saving faith. So when Jesus says we must be like little children to enter the kingdom of God, I interpret that to mean that we must recognize our total dependence on God's grace, turn to Jesus in unconditional loving devotion, and trust him alone to bring us safely into his kingdom. The New Testament shorthand for that is faith, or believing in Jesus. Now, as we read the next story, I want you to note the contrast between the little children in this story who have nothing to offer and the man in the next story who thinks he is worthy. Let's start with Mark 10, verses 17 and 18. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. The Jehovah's Witnesses cult doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus. In other words, they don't believe Jesus is God. They often point to this verse and say, See, Jesus denied being God in verse 18 when he said, No one is good except God alone. Their interpretation, however, would contradict the broader context of Mark, which clearly presents Jesus as saying and doing things that, in a first-century Jewish context, would be true only of God. For example, Jesus is portrayed by Mark as claiming to directly forgive sins, to be Lord over the Sabbath, to overturn Old Testament dietary laws, to walk on water, and to immediately calm storms. Only God has this power and authority. And as we will soon see from the immediate context, that Jesus is not denying his deity here in this passage either. His question, why do you call me good, is actually testing the man, as if to imply, are you coming to me as a good teacher who can answer your question? Or are you coming to me as the good one, God, who can give you the eternal life you seek? Jesus apparently didn't wait for an answer. Instead, in verse 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, that's only six of the Ten Commandments. I think Mark was either summarizing Jesus' response or Jesus was just reciting some of the commandments as examples. Either way, the man responded in verse 20, Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I think the man was sincere. He really did think he had kept all the commandments. So in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me." Jesus' instruction for the man to sell everything is puzzling, because Jesus didn't tell everyone else to sell all they had in order to follow him or have eternal life. For example, he didn't tell Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to sell their home. And when a man in the Decapolis begged to follow Jesus, Jesus didn't tell him to sell his home either. In fact, Jesus told the man to return to his home and tell the good things God had done for him. I could give numerous other examples, but the point is that Jesus did not require everyone to sell everything to have eternal life. So why did Jesus tell the man in this story to sell everything? The answer is that the man claimed to have kept all the commandments. So Jesus was testing him on the very first commandment you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus was asking the man to demonstrate that he loved God, the good one, who was standing right in front of him, more than he loved his possessions. Contrary to the man's claim to have kept all the commandments, Jesus' test demonstrated that the man failed on the very first commandment. The man's response indicated that he valued his possessions more than he valued Jesus, the good one. So according to this passage, how does one inherit eternal life? By valuing or loving Jesus even more than you love your possessions, by loving your neighbor as yourself. The New Testament calls that heart attitude, faith. And by the way, Loving God and loving your neighbor is a summary of the Ten Commandments. But Paul says we are saved by grace through faith and not by the law. Is Paul contradicting Jesus? Not at all. Paul's addressing a different question. Paul is arguing against those who think they are saved by their works of righteousness or by meticulously keeping the law's 613 commands. Jesus, on the other hand, was not teaching salvation by works. He was teaching faith as an attitude of loving devotion toward God, just as the law of Moses taught throughout the book of Deuteronomy. But many scholars would say that it is impossible to truly love God with all our heart. Therefore, Jesus was simply pointing us to our need for him as a Savior. But that's not what the passage says. Of course, we certainly do need Jesus as our savior, but the idea that no one can truly love God is entirely foreign to the gospels. Jesus seems to expect that people can and should love God with all their hearts and their neighbors themselves. Certainly not perfectly, of course, only Christ was perfect. So for example, when Luke chapter one says that Zachariah and Elizabeth kept, quote, all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That doesn't mean they were sinlessly perfect. No one is. It means they loved God with all their heart and had no other gods before him. It is entirely possible to love God, to love Jesus in such a way that he is first in one's life. So there are no other gods coming before him. In verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The implication is that the man loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus and therefore would not inherit eternal life. So in verses 23 and 24, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard, presumably, because the more you have, the more you have to lose. The more attached you often become to it, and the more difficult it is to give it up. The disciples were amazed at this teaching, probably because the Old Testament often regarded wealth as a sign of God's blessing. But the problem with this man wasn't necessarily his wealth. Jesus doesn't condemn wealth by itself. The problem was that the man valued or loved his wealth more than he loved the Lord. So in verse 25, Jesus says, It is easier for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It was once possible for... er, Popular for Bible teachers to say that the eye of a needle was the name given to a small city gate in the wall of Jerusalem. The only way for camels to enter this gate was by kneeling and crawling. Very difficult, if not impossible, for camels to do. Unfortunately for this interpretation, there is no evidence for such a gate until about 800 years after Jesus' time. No, the needle Jesus refers to is a regular sewing needle. It is just as impossible for someone to save themselves as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. And by the way, there is some evidence that something like a camel or even an elephant and an eye of the needle may have been a common figure of speech in Jesus' time. Anyway, verses 26 and 27 say the disciples were even more amazed said to each other who then can be saved Jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but not with God all things are possible with God being saved in verse 26 is a reference to being saved from the wrath of God at the final judgment pastors love to talk about the love of God but most don't say anything about the wrath of God anymore The wrath of God, however, is a significant biblical doctrine. For example, both Matthew 3 and Luke 3 say that John the Baptist warned people to flee from the wrath to come. John 3.36 says the wrath of God remains on those who reject Jesus. Romans 1.8 says God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans 2.5 says, warns that those who stubbornly continue in their unrepentance are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. I could give more examples, but Hebrews 10.31 30, says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My point is that if our only hope is in the God we have provoked to wrath, We have no hope at all, unless he extends grace. Verses 28 to 30, then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Down through the ages, there have been many Christians who would testify that the love and support they receive from their Christian brothers and sisters in church, or mothers and fathers in the faith, has been far more than any love or support they receive from biological families, who often rejected them out of persecution. That was probably especially true in Jesus' time. We should also note that it's not the actual leaving that saved them. They receive eternal life because of a heart attitude that put Jesus before brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. That is admittedly a difficult teaching. But when you love Christ even more than you love your closest loved ones, it actually helps you love them even more than you might otherwise. You see, without Christ, our love for others is often just conditional. As the great seminary professor Howard Hendricks once said, husbands, you will only love your wives as Christ loved the church, when Christ is the Lord of your life. Same thing goes for wives. It is our love for Christ above all that gives greater depth and unconditional love for our family and others that many non-Christians just don't have. In verse 31, Jesus concludes saying, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Many of those who are last in this life will be first in the kingdom of God. Take our missionary, Ethan, for example. He has a master's degree and either has his doctor's degree or is getting close to it. He has great administrative and organizational skills, significant leadership ability and experience. If he had gone to work for a big corporation, it is entirely possible that he could be making a ton of money right now, maybe even living a life of luxury. Instead, he uses his education and talents, working for the Lord for minimal pay, In a part of the world, most people live in poverty and are often in danger. But many who have given up everything in this life to follow Jesus will be first in the future kingdom of God. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let me leave you with just two observations or lessons. First, in response to the question, who then can be saved? As I showed above, our sin has provoked God to wrath. If our only hope is in the God we have provoked to wrath, we have no hope at all unless he extends grace. So the first lesson is that it is impossible to be saved from the wrath of God by our own efforts. It is only possible through the grace of God who poured out his wrath on his own son on the cross in our place. Second, Jesus taught that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Just as a little child is totally dependent on his or her parents for everything, we need to recognize our total dependence on the Lord for our salvation from the wrath of God. And like a little child might trust her dad to keep her safe, we must trust Jesus to safely bring us into his kingdom. In other words, when I stand before the final judgment throne, I place no trust in anything I've done. I trust only in what Jesus has done for me on the cross to bring me safely into his kingdom. But when Jesus says, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, I think Jesus is also thinking of the unconditional love and devotion a little child might have for his or her parents. Our passage this morning teaches that in order to be saved from the wrath of God at the final judgment, we, like little children, must recognize our total inability to save ourselves and turn to Jesus with the kind of unconditional loving devotion and commitment a little child might have for his or her mother. Like the man who thought he had kept all the commandments, we need to love Jesus more than we love our stuff. And folks, that shouldn't be hard to do. After all, the creator of heaven and earth loved us so much, he became human, allowed himself to be beaten and tortured on a Roman cross in our place. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has never responded to your grace, we pray that they repent of their sin, commit their heart and life to you in faith, that they would begin the new year with new life from you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.